Uh, as already been said a couple times, we are doing first and third Sunday nights. If you're visiting with us, just to give you an idea of what we're doing. Uh, first and third, third Sunday nights, we've been work, working on doing a, a bit of a guided reading of, a, of the Bible this year. We're reading through the Bible chronologically as a church. And so a couple of Sunday nights a month, we've been doing a discussion class just to help us to facilitate a better reading of the Bible so that we can kind of help people put the puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle together and see how everything fits. And we do believe this is one united, this one beautiful, cohesive narrative that God is doing from the beginning to the end. Steve Cottney has graciously agreed to be my discussion partner tonight, and he's going to talk to us for a few minutes about some of the historical part of the Old Testament. We're reading, you know, we've been reading in the portion from Saul, David, Solomon. You remember the kingdom divided. Steve's going to talk about this. Kingdom divided, and now you've got two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, with a whole bunch of different kings. Most of them were bad. And Steve's going to talk to us about that for a few minutes. So if you would, Steve, go ahead and come on up. We've got a PowerPoint. Steve has prepared one, and I appreciate the work he's put into this. I'm looking forward to, to hearing this. Uh, did y'all get all of that? Because I can't go back. I don't even remember what I said. So <laughs> Anyway, this, this idea about kings it was not something new. This was something that was spoke about to Abraham, as we see there in uh, Genesis 17, verse 4. Told him there would be kings uh, uh, from his, uh, uh, his, his, his line of... Uh, of uh, genealogy of, of the people that would come after him. And in Genesis 35, he told Jacob the same thing. So we see that kings was going to be a part of it. God in his providence knew uh, the events that would happen, that kings would be a part of this. And so what I want to do is look at an overview of the kingdoms. I'm not really going to talk about it in the specifics other than Hezekiah. And if you want to go ahead and, and turn your Bibles to 2 Kings verse 15, in 2 Chronicles 29, those will, you can put your finger there, flip back and forth. One is a little more detailed than the other. Uh, I know you cannot see that, okay? But you can see the color, right? And there's, Israel is on the right. I've got a little better diagram of this here in a second. I'll blow this up for you. But what I wanted to show you is at the top is the, the United Kingdom. That, that was when Saul, David, Solomon ruled uh, the, the nation of Israel. And then it split off into two. And like I say, you'll see this. And then there's all the prophets. This is just some stuff I threw in there. If, it's a great reference for you. What prophets were during what time of the kings? It's a great reference for you. And we see in the time of Hezekiah, it was Isaiah and Micah. So we see the kings, the original kingdom was set up. And you had Saul and 
I think that's Ishbosheth, is how you say that. Uh, Abner was uh, responsible for putting him in power, and uh, Ishbosheth apparently didn't realize that and offended Abner. Well, that was a mistake. So anyway, his kingdom didn't last long. David ruled in Hebron for seven years. He ruled over Israel for 40 years, and uh, he ruled over Judah for 33 years. So, and then, of course, Solomon. So that was the United Kingdom. Well, what happened, you say, I've drawn a line here through it, so I want to uh, distinguish between the two uh, different kingdoms. Uh, the kings of Israel to the right, that kingdom lasted 204 years. Kingdoms to the left, the king of Judah, lasted 339 years. Now, what I want you to know about the colors. The pink colors is the ones that did evil. The green color is the ones that did right by God. Now look at the difference. Look at the difference. Do you see any on the right side? The yellow color is mixed. That's one that started out good and fell away. And you see Jehu was one of them on the right side. It was a five-year dynasty of his sons that followed, and all of them were evil. So, so what does that have to do with us, really? God expectations for us. Leadership is, is, is really what it speaks to me is about leadership. And we see a nation that had poor leadership. And look what happened. Matter of fact, as we look at Hezekiah in a minute, we're going to see that Hezekiah says the reason you have the problems you've got is because you've moved away from God. That's why you're in the condition you're in. And we'll look at that in just a second. But we all have, we're all leaders. When I say leadership, I'm not just talking about leadership in the church, but we all are leaders. We all have a sphere of influence of somebody that we can influence, somebody in our daily lives, whether it's at work or at school or whatever it is, neighbors, relatives, we have a sphere of influence. And, and, and we can influence them for good, as we'll see the, the kings that ruled in and Judah, that were good, had an influence on that nation for good. Uh, and I, I list parent, parents have a tremendous sphere of influence over their children. I had to put grandparents in there. You know that, right? Uh, so, but the grandparents have a tremendous influence. I know my grandparents have a tremendous influence over me. So we all have these spheres of influence, and it's important, I think, for us to take away from this lesson is that we do have that influence and be conscious of that as we go about our daily task, looking at what we're doing and why we're doing. Okay, I've pointed to Hezekiah here. You can see Uzziah, I don't know if you can read that or not, but Uzziah ruled for 52 years. That's the biggest green block you see up there. He ruled for 52 years. Then after him came uh, Jotham, and he ruled for 16 years, Ahaz 16 years, and Hezekiah for 29 years. Now, Hezekiah's daddy was a bad guy, Ahaz, and he was, uh, he's not, a, he didn't follow God's ways. He pretty much destroyed the temple, and we'll look at some of this as we go through it. Uh, the Bible says that Hezekiah was the greatest king of the divided kingdom. Let's take a look in 2 Kings 
uh, chapter 18, I think I said 15, I meant 18. It says, uh, Hezekiah trusted in Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. So Bible even says that he had, uh, his father was David. He doesn't mean his literal father was David. What he said was, what, he, what is meant there is he had the passion and the zeal like David. David had a lot of passion and a lot of zeal about what he was about. And, uh, and so Hezekiah had, had this same passion and this same zeal uh, for the Lord. In 2 Kings 18, there's kind of an overview, if you will, of what Hezekiah did. 2 Chronicles 29 really goes into detail about what he did. And we'll look at some of that. Now, Ahaz, uh, uh, Hezekiah inherited a mess from his father. Uh, in uh, 21st century terms, he was paying a ransom, if you will, to the Assyrian army for protection. It would be kind of like we enter into agreements today with countries to, for protection. They'll pay us dollars to protect them if something happens to them. But he was paying that to pagans. His trust wasn't in the Lord. It was in other people to protect him. They were a small nation, a weak nation. They were kind of sandwiched in between the Egyptians and the Assyrians. So they were kind of, so he needed some way to protect. So he basically was paying a ransom for a period of time and he was bleeding the nation financially. And so the uh, king of Assyria, and when, uh, we'll get into this, when Hezekiah revolts, he really puts the hammer to him, you know, and he sieges the city. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, he was an idolater. So he developed all these different uh, pagan gods and worships uh, and brought it into the nation, even up in the mountains. And we'll, we'll look at some of this. All right, there were three main events that I want us to look at in Hezekiah's life. One is the reform of the nation. I don't know that we'll, we won't get to all three of these. Response to the Assyrians and the restoration from terminal illness. He was going to die. And uh, he pleaded with God to spare him. And God did extend his life. But reform of the nation, that's really what we're going to focus on because the nation needed reforming. And what uh, Hezekiah did We'll look in 2 Kings 18, verses 1 through 8. It talks a little bit about what he, he, uh, what he took on. Uh, it said uh, that, in starting in verse, he, would, he did right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Here again, there's the reference to David. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made at the time of the Israelites in burning incense. Uh, that snake was called Nehushtain, I believe is the way you say that. It said, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. And he rebelled in verse uh, 7. It says he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So we can see just, I kind of like to look a little bit further deep. When I, when I look at things like this, I wonder about all, all the stuff that you would have to deal with. You've got to remember, you've got a nation here that's been in idolatry for a while. And here comes Hezekiah, and he starts cleaning the house. 
How do you think some of the people took that? You think he just went in there and it was easy? I don't, I don't think so. I think it was difficult, extremely difficult to be able to go in and change that nation because they had been in idolatry for so long. But here Hezekiah is, and he puts his trust in the Lord to bring the people back. Uh, another thing that's interesting to me, I don't know if I put this in the slide or not, but is uh, the fact that he celebrates Passover. That's pretty interesting because the temple was complete the 16th day of the first month. When was Passover? 14th day of the first month. And if you read, you see that he has the Passover. and he's, Now, you could be exempt from that law if you were unclean in the military uh, for some reason you were hindered and couldn't participate. There was a law in, in Numbers, the uh, ninth chapter, verse 10, I believe it is, said you could partake of the Passover the 14th day of the second month. So as you read 2 Chronicles, you'll see that's what he did. And he was trying to unite the nation of Israel and Judah together by sending out invitations to everybody to come. He didn't have time uh, to, to do that uh, prior to finishing the, the, the temple. He couldn't do that. He didn't have time. So we see that he's, here again, he's, he's applying all the resources that he has to make this happen. And this is one of those legal obstacles. You can imagine what the legalities and some of those around would have said. Well, you can't do that. Well, here was, quote, a kind of a loophole, if you will. So that's, I, that's the way I look at it. So the question I have is, where does his influence come? This is supposed to be a surprise. It's supposed to be animated, so you didn't see that. Where's his influence come from? His mom. His mom, right? Good guess. So, so came from his mom. Uh, her name meant God is my father. So, uh, we know it didn't come from his father, right? So we see that he probably was influenced heavily by his mother, and he became a great king, and he united the nation uh, of Judah. Um, I already mentioned he cleaned house that was his reform to get rid of everything when he talks about removal of, high, of altars in high places altars in the mountain now what was the requirement to worship well where did you have to go you had to go to Jerusalem didn't you so what do you think happened some people said well I don't want to go to Jerusalem I think we'll just do it right here up in the mountain so people were just doing it any way they wanted to as far as worship is concerned. So he tears down all these altars uh, in high places. Removal of the Asherah poles. Wooden poles representing female deity. Is that, that's what they were. Here again, you can see all the idolatry that's embedded in this nation. And uh, the removal of the new stand. You know, that, that was the brass, bronze serpent that, that Moses... God told him to make, and they were bitten by uh, poisonous snakes, and those that looked upon it were healed. Why were they healed? Because of the bronze serpent? What healed them? Their faith, right? They believed that what Moses said. So it was their faith 
that made them right with God. If faith is what healed them. And so, anyway, they began to worship idols. Um, he had a tremendous amount of courage to confront a nation. Um, and his was based on God's word. The Bible tells us there that as you read through this, that he, the nation became wealthy again. Um, and their finances. He had, here again, what uh, Hezekiah did is he said, I'm not going to pay the king of Assyria anymore. I'm just going to stop paying. And the king of Assyria didn't take that very kindly. So he put a siege on the city. Not only did he put a siege on the city, he started telling the ones, sending messages and telling the ones on the, uh, the walls and the lookouts that this Hezekiah guy, you know, he, he's, uh, you're all going to die because of him. Uh, and don't believe in the, the God uh, that he's telling you about. Look at all the idol gods that everybody else had, and look at us as Syria. We overtook these nations. And they had gods. They had idol gods. Your God's not going to do you any good. And so you can see what Hezekiah's up against. A tremendous amount of pressure, I would think. But the people were faithful. They stuck by him. And he told them to be courageous. And they didn't answer uh, these charges. Um, let's see if I've got something else here to refer. It was a test of faith. Um, he tells them in uh, 2 Chronicles, the 32nd chapter, verse 7, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, because the king of Assyria... And this is what Merv talked about in his class this morning about David. Listen to what he says. Because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, there is, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord God to help us and to fight our battles. Here, here is the same thing that, that we talked about earlier is about faith. Hezekiah convince the people to believe in, in God, that God will deliver you. And he did. The Bible tells us that as they had the siege on, the Egyptian army was coming up from the south to attack the Assyrians. So the king had, from Assyria had to leave. He was actually at uh, outside of Jerusalem there, I guess, taunting Hezekiah and the people. And the Egyptian army was coming up, so he had to vacate. The Bible tells us that, and this is a lead-in to Chuck here on, on Isaiah, that Hezekiah and Isaiah, it'd be kind of like you're, you know, I'm out of options. We can't beat these guys. We already know that. They've already taken over all the other cities. We can't win this battle. So what did they do? Well, Hezekiah and Isaiah went to the temple and prayed. And what did God do? He destroyed, uh, some commentators tell me, 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. Now, the king of Assyria obviously heard about this, and he kind of got scared. <laughs> okay? And then he goes to his own temple, his own gods, and he's, he's uh, killed. So this, to me... I think that may be my last. No? Yes. Okay. 
uh, that was my last slide. But to me, you can see some challenges. And, and, and as I look at this in life, I don't know about you, but I know in, there have been times that, you know, I don't know what else to do but go to God. And when, we're, and when times are good, you know, sometimes we forget. Look at what Hezekiah did. What, after he was healed of his sickness, the Bible tells us he got filled with what? Pride. He got filled with pride. And then he repented of it. He realized, what, what do you think was happening? Look what I did. Look at me. I took these guys down. I'm a great king. He was filled with pride. So human, isn't it? You can see how that can happen. And God, and here's the, the kicker in the, in the chart I showed you. Um, there was about three years, I think, prior to this that the Syrians took over the nation of Israel. But uh, you, you can see uh, Hezekiah gets deathly ill. And he's concerned that the changes and the progress they've made as a nation is going to be lost. Why? Because he's going to die. So he prays to God, and God extends his life for 15 more years. All right, Chuck. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate that. Huh? He put a lot of time into that, and that was good. That was a good summary of that time period with all these, these kings. Um, we're going to watch a video in just a minute. And uh, before we do that, though, I want to just set the stage for what we're going to, what that video is going to talk about. Uh, just to make sure, I know we've talked about this before, and this is common knowledge for some of you, but just to make sure you understand, in your reading, you know, when you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel before, but especially not really with First and Second Samuel, but First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, the prophetic books were written during this time frame. All right, Steve talked about this a little bit. So it's kind of like when you read Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament, you know that the book of Romans was written uh, in, in, in the book of Acts. You know, it was written sometime around, um, well, what chapter? Uh, I don't know, Acts 18 or so. Acts, somewhere in the book of Acts, you know, Paul wrote Romans. And in 1 Corinthians, he wrote after he left Corinth in Acts 18. You know, he wrote, wrote it back to the church. So like with that, with First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, the reason our readings will, will read in First Chronicles and then it'll, or Second Chronicles, and it'll jump us to Isaiah. And we'll read, like we started reading Isaiah. What it's trying to do is show you that the book of Isaiah is talking about stuff you're reading about right now. All right, just, just to make sure you understand that. And so with Hezekiah, as Steve was talking about, Hezekiah is prominent in the book of Isaiah. And that's why when you're reading about Hezekiah, then our reading is going to stop the history, and it's going to take us to the book of Isaiah for a bit. Uh, just a couple more things, and we'll watch this video that will pretty much close us out tonight. But is um, because we're going to get to this in the next couple weeks, just to make sure when you get there you notice this is a big deal. When we get to, when is this? This is uh, the 13th, so this is next Saturday. You're going to read from Second Kings and Second Chronicles, and then the next day, next Sunday, you're going to read Isaiah 13 through 17. What, what, what's happening there is the northern kingdom is going to fall. Okay, it's Just when you read that, remember, that's a big deal. <laughs> They're going to fall to Assyria. 
like the same king that came against, uh, came against Hezekiah, he's uh, taking the north away. You know, Assyria's gonna, I mean, Israel's gonna fall to Assyria. That's a big deal. So the northern kingdom goes away and they don't ever come back again, not as a united people. So when you read that next Saturday and Sunday, just remember that's talking about the fall of Israel. Judah's gonna live on for another 135 years or so before they fall to Babylon. Um, Isaiah is during the time of both Israel and Judah, so he's talking a little bit to both. Um, let's see. That's good. Let's, um, this is, this is going to last eight minutes long. Just a brief word of introduction. This is Bible Project stuff, as we've done in the past. Good stuff. It's substantive. Listen closely to what, what they say. They, uh, they're giving good meat content. There's depth there. There's very much of an awareness of what's going on. If you listen to this, and I'm not showing all of them. I, I think it'd be helpful if we showed them all. If you're really serious about your reading, you'll, you'll go to the Bible Project's website and watch some of the other videos, too. And they're linked in that app. Some of them are linked in the app, I think, that we're using. Uh, anyway, let's show that video about Isaiah, and then I'll get back up and finish up. The book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. And it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice. And God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God. And Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. 
And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment, but because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in the field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send, after this destruction, a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity, and it's described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin, and one day is going to be replaced by the new Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. 
which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God, and he prays for divine deliverance, and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. Okay, so just we started reading Isaiah today. Just uh, that'll help you if you remember that. We'll actually get into... We will get into the second part of Isaiah chapter 40 until after we do this discussion class again, so we'll talk about that more later. Also, in the next uh, couple weeks, we are going to be reading, in fact, this week, we'll start reading the book of Micah. Just remember, we don't have time to say a lot about Micah, but Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah, so just remember, he's about the same time frame, and there's a focus in the book of, My, uh, a book of Micah about the leaders and the prophets, so the civil leaders and the prophets. Micah is really going to hit those guys pretty hard as far as what they're doing. So just pay attention to that when you read the book of Micah. The key chapter is Micah 6, verse 8. Key verse is verse 8 when he says, God has shown you, O man, what is good and what, what the Lord requires of you to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Beautiful verse. That's the key verse of the book of Micah. So keep reading. I hope that you'll stick with us. If you're behind, it's okay. You can catch up or you can just start back where we are and try to catch up later on. But I appreciate very much your, uh, your attention and letting us talk about this. Have questions as you're reading. I didn't get any this last time. Uh, email them to me, text them to me, and we'll try to get to them in the class, all right? Let's close with a prayer. Father, thank you so much for letting us read your word. We know that it's perfect, and it is suitable for our spiritual growth. It's everything that we need in our relationship with you as your spirit works through the word to shape us and mold us. We pray you'll help us to be obedient to what we read, and we will rightly divide your word. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.